Good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at Cato and the editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Today, we're having a book forum on Steve Tellis's book, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement. I read this book about two months ago, and I was, I was impressed with it. I could tell right away it was an important book. Um, however, I was concerned that uh, it wouldn't sell many copies. I mean, it's, it's not, as far as legal nonfiction goes, uh, compared to Jeffrey Tubin's and Jan Crawford Greenberg's recent tomes about the Supreme Court, um, or let alone Clarence Thomas's memoirs, something like this, I, I thought, you know, might get lost under the radar. In part, it's because people are more interested in the criminology of, of the least public branch of government, the, the nine black-robed magistrates in their marble pal- palace on uh, 1 First Street, um, than in the nuts and bolts of conservatives' reactions to whatever's going on in academia. But more than that, I thought it would uh, uh, fly under the radar because, after all, it's an academic book written by a professor uh, with the research methodology and citation practices of a social scientist. It's to to, uh, Steve's great credit that he mostly avoided political science jargon. Uh, But still, this is not a, a journalistic narrative. Perhaps to even greater credit, uh, Steve managed to write this book without ever once resorting to the usually superfluous empirical and re- uh, models and regression analyses that populate and are demanded by practitioners of the so-called soft sciences. So I'll let, of course, Steve talk more about the book, but it's uh, organized around three very important themes in the development of uh, conservative and libertarian uh, legal uh, scholarship and, and activism. Uh, first, there's law and economics. Second is conservative public interest law groups. And third is the Federalist Society. And there's lots of interesting questions out of each of those sections. Curiously, the only mentions of Cato are in a footnote about one of our founders and a brief reference to Roger Pallon. Uh, I, I understand that Heritage and uh, specifically Ed Meese have also grumbled about their <laughs> short thrift in the book about that. Uh, but uh, as Steve was telling me before we came in here, apparently the book is, is doing quite well in sales, so I'm, I'm happy to be proven uh, wrong about that. Uh, but, of course, one might understand this when it has such broad appeal that the blurbs on the back uh, include both Al Gore and Krista Muth, the president of AEI, as well as, on the academic side, uh, Robbie George of Princeton and Jack Balkin of Yale. So, without further ado, let me introduce our book presenter today. Steve Tellis is a visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School. He has taught or visited at Brandeis, Harvard, Princeton, University of London, Boston University, Holy Cross, and Hamilton College. His scholarship includes the public policy of skepticism, and Whose Welfare, Elite Politics, and AFDC. He's now working on a new book examining the role of political analysis in legal and policy design. Steve has a BA from George Washington University and an MA and PhD from the University of Virginia. And let me just introduce our commenters as well so we can go through the program as as that's coming up. Our first commenter is former Congressman David McIntosh, who's now a partner at Mayor Brown, Rowan Ma, where his practice focuses on government affairs. During the Reagan administration, he served as special assistant to the Attorney General and special assistant to the President for Domestic Affairs. During the first Bush administration, he served as executive director of the President's Council on Competitiveness and assistant to the Vice President. 
He later represented Indiana's 2nd District in the House of Representatives, becoming chairman of the Subcommittee on Regulatory Relief. Uh, Congressman McIntosh has a bachelor's from Yale and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School, where he co-founded the Federal Society for Law and Public Policy, uh, on whose board he still serves. And last but not least, Roger Pallon, my colleague, is the founder and director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies, as well as occupying Cato's B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies. Before joining Cato, Dr. Pallon held uh, five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and Justice, and was a national fellow at Stanford's uh, Hoover Institution. He lectures at universities and law schools around the country and testifies before Congress. Roger has a bachelor's from Columbia, an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago, and a JD from uh, George Washington University Law School. So with that, Steve, the podium is yours. Um, based on uh, the beginning of Ilya's introduction, um, I'm glad I didn't ask him for a blurb, which would have been, it could have been worse. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I want to, uh, first of all, just thank um, all the people who, uh, without whose cooperation, this book wouldn't have been written. Uh, this book is based on, almost exclusively, on previously unavailable organizational material, some of which is no longer even in existence. Uh, The uh, material from the Federal Society was from their file cabinet. Um, The material from the Olin Foundation was from files that uh, existed uh, and and I don't think are actually available anymore that were uh, before they closed up. Uh, The same is true for the conservative public interest law. Henry Manny, who uh, is genetically connected to a member of our audience today, uh, was good enough to dig up material that was moldering in other people's file cabinets, as well as to go through his own voluminous uh, uh, memory on, uh, on, very, on the various different uh, things that happened to him in his time. So uh, whatever credit I think this book is due is due at least as much to the people who generously shared their memories and their files, files they did not have to uh, share access that uh, they didn't have to give as it was to whatever insight I might have. Um, So when I sat down to write the notes for this talk, um, the main question that was at the front of my mind was, what's the Cato angle on this book? Um, That is, I've given some other talks at various other places, uh, but I didn't want to just sort of go back through things I've said uh, to other people. It's a pretty big book, and it covers a lot of ground, and if I tried to cover everything that was in the the book, uh, we'd have to bring in a lot more coffee. so I'm interested in uh, figuring out uh, also what the, my prestigious commentators have to say. So I'm just going to give you one sort of thin slice of uh, one way you might cut into this book. Um, so I thought I'd couch my presentation here in what I'll call the philanthropic calculation debate. Uh, so some of you may know the reference. As most of you know, uh, much of modern libertarian uh, thought, at least economic thought, was born of the socialist calculation debate of the 1920s and 1930s. A variety of socialist economists argued that the market system was unnecessary, that central planners could organize the economy better than the market without the waste and absence of coordination that characterized capitalist systems, starting with von Mises and then concluding with Hayek. The Austrians made what I consider to be the utterly unanswerable response, which is that the crucial problem with socialist systems concerned the problem of aggregating Information. Simply put, no central planner could have access to the information necessary to organize an economy from the center. Markets work by decentralizing the search for information 
and the valuation of different potential investments. Right? I think that what we're currently in the middle of is what we might call, again, the philanthropic calculation debate. That is, one important example of this is the question of precisely what conservatives and libertarians actually did over the last 30 years. Those who are on the side of what I'll call philanthropic planning interpret the organization-building activities of conservatives and libertarians through what I call in the book the myth of diabolical competence. Uh, that is, a small number of extremely smart conservative philanthropists made a decision, maybe uh, in an underground bunker somewhere, um, to build up a conservative counter-establishment to liberalism operating on the basis of a clear and coherent plan and the organizations we see all around us, including Cato, are the fruits of that plan. That's what we might call the philanthropic planning uh, narrative. Um, again, I think this uh, comes about in part because uh, many on the left who've tried to understand this have simply inverted their own perception of themselves. They see themselves as benighted and benevolent and yet incompetent, and so they see in conservatives and libertarians the mirror image of themselves. The implication for liberals is therefore clear. They need to develop a similar coordinated plan of their own, determining from the center what sort of overall network of organizations they need, and going at it to find people to run the various parts of it. At a more prosaic level, the examples of this philanthropic planning mindset are the tendency of foundations to provide project rather than general support, to request funding for specific programs rather than general project-independent funding. One approach of this book is that this approach, uh, this approach what I'll uh, again call philanthropic planning, has all the same problems that socialist calculation did. Right? Um, conservatives and libertarians, at least in the law, were least successful when they were the most in a habit of trying to plan, when they most tried to lay out in the aggregate what their whole organizational apparatus ought to look, at, uh, look like on the basis of a single overall design. The best example of this is the growth of the conservative public interest law movement in the 1970s. Um, as many of you know, in the beginning of the 1970s, a very large number of conservative businessmen were scared half out of their lives, uh, out of their wits. Um, the rise of Nader organizations, the liberal public interest law organizations uh, funded by the Ford Foundation um, made many of these uh, conservative businessmen afraid for the very future of their uh, industries. And so they went out and uh, very systematically created a network of pu conservative public interest law firms. Uh, the first, uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, started out with a fairly clear, coherent, concentrated uh, vision. But then they went out and said, well, if, if Pacific works, what we need to do is do the exact same thing all over the country. So they created all these geographically oriented public interest law firms, and they essentially cartelized the market geographically. They said, you know, you get to, uh, you get the mountain states, you get the southeast, you get New England, uh, and you all have to essentially not compete with e each other, and we're going to create a, a central organization, uh, the National Center for Legal and uh, for Law and the Public Interest, that will make sure that you all stay within what you're supposed to be doing. Um, as Michael Horowitz, who's, uh, who's here um, uh, today, pointed out this first generation of conservative public interest law, which was based on a clear, centralized uh, vision and plan, was almost completely a failure. Um, these organizations uh, lacked uh, uh, much of an adaptation to the uh, circumstances that they were facing. Uh, very few of them had the ability to develop specialized knowledge to be repeat players uh, in the courts on particular areas of their specialization. 
Um, and so, again, almost all of these were most effectual, again, most ineffectual in the very point in which conservatives actually did what many liberals think they did, um, acted on the basis of a clear, coherent plan uh, uh, hatched by a small number of very wealthy people. Basically, conservatives in the 1970s were faced with a profoundly uncertain environment, uncertain in Frank Knight's sense of uncertainty, a circumstance in which actors could not determine a rational response based on prior experience, as, compo- as opposed to what Knight called risk, where the probabilities of success of various activities could be determined based on what had happened before. The reason for this is that the rise of the liberal legal uh, network, what I call that in the book, created a situation for which uh, conservatives simply did not know what the answer was. Right? The, uh, the rise of uh, liberal uh, public interest law firms, which seemed to be able to win case after case, despite the fact that many of their, uh, their positions were unpopular and, in fact, opposed by a large number of very wealthy uh, businessmen. The connection of these public interest law firms to um, the legal academy, where, uh, where liberals had developed very strong, concentrated, specialized centers to back up their public interest law. Um, all of this pr- uh, created a situation that conservatives genuinely did not know what the response was. It wasn't clear what would actually work. So conservatives responded to the rise of the liberal legal network initially by essentially ignoring the fact of uncertainty, ignoring the fact that they didn't actually know what would be uh, effective and falling back either on mimicry, that is doing what they thought the other side was doing, in many cases completely inaccurately, or replication, doing what, was, what had worked for conservatives or libertarians in other areas. The example of the conservative public interest law movement uh, makes this case very well. That is, uh, in, ele- in the electoral sphere, creating a bunch of geographically organized um, organizations made a lot of sense because our electoral system is organized geographically, right? And a lot of the, mo- and the strongest networks and the strongest resources conservatives had were geographically oriented uh, uh, groups of businessmen. But this was an incredibly bad fit for the nature of law, which had essentially been centralized by the uh, liberal legal network. Uh, Liberals, in the process of expanding their control over law, had made uh, the law an area in which specialized knowledge, uh, repeat players, uh, lawyers who were able to be uh, attracted by idealism were important. um, And therefore, conservatives essentially ignored just how profoundly uncertain the environment they faced, and their response was consequentially unsuccessful. Faced with uncertainty, the most rational response begins with humility, simply recognizing the limits of human knowledge to determine a rational response in the absence of information. Where conservatives and libertarians were most successful then, they actually engaged in what I call spread betting, which is the opposite of planning, right? Giving support to a wide range of options where efficacy was hard to determine in advance and then depending more on feedback, that is, uh, throwing more resources at organizations or activities that seem to provide significant returns when they actually operated in the real world. That is, conservatives were most successful when they, uh, get, when they used their, uh, their rationality on the back end rather than the front end. An emphasis on the limits of information at the center also suggests the limits of what funders at the center can actually know about various projects they might support. Under conditions of uncertainty, information is likely to be in the form of tacit knowledge, a feel that actors have um, who are actually engaged in political or ideological conflict 
uh, about what will or will not, will not work. Funders may be able to determine what sort of actors seem to have this feel, this tacit ability to know where opportunities lie. But rarely do they know enough to actually know whether the projects these actors want to engage in make sense, at least in advance. That suggests that the rational strategy of political investment is to follow a strategy of people, not projects, funding people who seem like they know what they're doing and deferring to their judgment about what to do. Again, this is the opposite, in my judgment, of planning. Um, this is a model that, uh, that uh, libertarians uh, adopted all the way back to the 1950s. The model for this was the Earhart Foundation and the, before that the, the Volcker Foundation. Um, and almost all the uh, major conservative foundations, Scaife, Olin, learned directly from this older libertarian and conservative approach. So when one is facing profound uncertainty, conservatives and libertarians also learn to fall back on networks rather than hierarchy. That is, if one doesn't know what would work, the best investments are in networks that allow for information to be rapidly shared and trust to be developed within that network. I can think of two good examples of where conservatives um, uh, rationally followed a strategy of networks rather than hierarchy. The first case would be the Federalist Society. A lot of uh, uh, fairly paranoid sorts have had an image that Gene Meyer is somehow sitting in his office at the Federalist Society pulling all the levers like the, the Wizard of Oz. Um, now, again, I wouldn't want to say that you know, uh, that he's, he's back there, and that in fact, there, you know, there's, uh, uh, he's not pulling any levers. Um, but in fact, the Federal Society mainly operates as a network rather than a hierarchy, rather than, uh, than uh, Gene sending out messages by microwave to a bunch of uh, willing uh, uh, serfs out there in the countryside to follow his every order. The Federal Society mainly operates because they, they create opportunities for people to, uh, uh, to uh, enact plans or come up with ideas that uh, weren't planned, that weren't projected in advance. A lot of the organization of the Federal Society, which is, again, organized on the basis of both um, lawyers groups and student groups as well as practice groups, is designed so that they can find out things uh, that would make sense. That is to create opportunities for repeated interactions among members, where ideas for uh, various programming can come about without anyone from the center actually planning them. The, the second example would be the Law and Economics Seminars of Henry Manny, um, who, again, is one of the, uh, the main uh, characters in my book. Um, while Henry Manny had all these uh, econo Law and Economics Seminars in the 1970s and 1980s for professors, for economists, for judges, uh, he planned ones uh, at some point for the clergy, which I think was not one of the more successful enterprises he, uh, he tried out. Um, these were important in part for the substance of what people were arguing about. They were arguing about various different issues in law and economics, areas that the field hadn't quite figured out um, uh, what to make of yet. But just as important were the connections that these seminars provided for members of the network, people who didn't know each other, didn't have a uh, tight bonds of trust, were thrown together for two or three days in nice hotels with nice, uh, with nice wine and meals um, and developed the ability to come up with ideas of their own, come up with projects of their own that neither Henry nor anybody else had actually planned. Networks are also superior in many cases to hierarchy where evaluation is concerned. Many of the projects of the conservative legal movement had very diffuse and hard-to-measure uh, effects. In such case, hierarchical means of evaluation, like formal evaluation where you come up with quantitative measures of effect, um, are likely to be less valuable than network forms of evaluation that depend on the reputations 
that actors have within networks of specialized um, operations, right? Olin, for example, I went through the files of the Olin Foundation, and one thing I found was, despite the millions of uh, dollars the Olin Foundation was funding, I don't know that they, uh, they actually had any formal quantitative evaluation ever in their history. Mainly, their form of evaluation was to call people up on the phone and say, uh, this guy's doing this project. Did it work? Did it make any sense? Did anybody pay attention to it? Um, when they tried to figure out who to uh, invest in, uh, for the most part, they would call up people they trusted. They would call up uh, members of uh, you know, senior professors or lawyers and ask them to write letters based on their own private information about how these things seem to be working. Finally, networks of this kind are also essential to the process of knowledge generation. In a wide range of cases, conservatives and libertarians did not know what the best position was on a wide range of issues, right? That is, even though they had a, a set of fairly high-order preferences and philosophy, what that actually meant when you drill down the, the specifics of various different um, uh, legal issues were unclear. So, in fact, again, um, under such conditions, what made the most sense was to put money into network entrepreneurs, groups that could produce the repeated in, uh, intense interactions out of which intellectual creativity emerges rather than coming up with a set of ideas in the center and saying, somebody go work on, on these. Um, again, Randall Collins has discussed this in his, uh, his uh, quite wonderful book, the sociology of philosophies, what really matters for intellectual uh, development is to put people, put smart people in the same place at the same time um, to the degree to which you can get this sort of in intense emotional interactions that are necessary for intellectual progress. Again, I think this explains the importance of both the Federal Society and Henry Manny's Law and Economics programs, putting people in the same place at the same time over and over again where people can have continuing arguments uh, is much more important than trying to come up with the idea of what those arguments or what those positions ought to be in advance. The final thing that comes out of the networks rather than hierarchy approach is a focus on learning within movements. It simply takes a very long time to learn what works and what doesn't under conditions of uncertainty. Learning is essential if you think that rationality is more likely to be found after the fact than before. But one thing that, again, that all good Hayekians know is that learning happens not because particular actors are so smart uh, or because they draw the right lessons of experience, but because new actors enter the market and take market share from their predecessors. In the case of conservative public interest law, both all the founders of the Institute for Justice and the Center for Individual Rights, who are the main uh, examples of conservative, sec what I call second-generation conservative public interest law, had been at previous earlier conservative public interest law firms, in this case the Washington Legal Foundation and the Mountain State <coughs> Um, legal foundation. Um, both of them had learned from the lessons of the mistakes that these organizations had made, but those previous organizations were, for the most part, not able to do so, or at least not able to do so quickly, because all organizations develop a certain degree of organizational inertia. Um, only by allowing new entrants to the market, encouraging new entrants to learn those lessons, um, can mistakes actually be corrected. I'd like to make one more point before closing and letting my prestigious fellow panelists take the floor, and that's about how ideational change happens, which obviously is a, uh, a particular concern of the Cato Institute, simply because the metaphor seems so obvious and its relevance in, for example, science seems so clear, we often fall back on the idea of the marketplace of ideas as our metaphor for explaining ideational change. Uh, that is, if we have a uh, an unconstrained market that doesn't have uh, a degree of market power, eventually good ideas will be in a, a process of competition and the right ones will win out. 
But I think this mistakes the very large differences between political and legal ideas and scientific ideas, on the other hand. In examining the cases under study in this book, I became convinced that ideational change follows a two-step process, which I will call, on the one hand, legitimation, and the second, persuasion. While the persuasion stage has a great deal in common with the marketplace of ideas, the legitimation phase doesn't. Unorthodox ideas are usually faced in their early stage with a problem of simply not being taken seriously at all. Uh, when I uh, interviewed Henry Manny, he used to describe being at conferences and people thinking he was literally out of his mind. Um, they're these ideas are treated as nutty, off the wall, to use my friend Jack Balkan's term. Trafe, uh, to use a term that some of you will be familiar, ritually unclean. They're treated as things that serious people, responsible lawyers, can reasonably ignore. The challenge in the legitimation phase is to prevent ideas from simply being dismissed. This is where, for example, I think the role of the Federalist Society and Henry Manny's economic center, uh, seminars for judges and law professors were vital. Um, that is, in the case of uh, Manny's seminars, these actually uh, took ideas, in most cases, the role of economics in law, and, uh, and uh, provided a very large incentive for people to come and be exposed to these. These were often, again, for a, a couple of weeks or more in very nice uh, locales. But for people who, in many cases, dismissed these ideas because the setup costs of actually <coughs> learning about them uh, were fairly high, um, or, again, because they were simply considered to be exotic or eccentric or things that weren't uh, worth paying attention to. Very few people actually went out of Henry Manny's seminars completely convinced that they were willing to be uh, what Robert Bork describes himself uh, as uh, after having uh, uh, taught, uh, been taught by Aaron Director as being a janissary for law and economics, but many of them were willing to take it seriously. They were willing to uh, consider it. They were willing to treat it on its own merits. Um, and again, I think that's what's essential about this legitimation stage, is that the role of, um, of intellectual entrepreneurs is not necessarily to persuade people of the rightness or correctness of an idea, but to persuade them that it's an idea that serious people can actually take seriously. In a way, we can think about the world of ideas as being like an iceberg. Debate only happens on the very small number of ideas above the water, those that, uh, that are considered to be um, reasonable things for reasonable people to take seriously. But, but underneath that are all the ideas that are simply out of circulation altogether. It takes a very long time for ideas to be legitimated. There are very few people who have the temperament to stick with them when, while they're still in the phase of being stigmatized. Most people simply put, do not like being thought of as kooks. That is why philanthropic patience, in many cases, is so important. It can take decades for an idea to be taken seriously, to get out from underneath the iceberg. And precisely how it will happen, what will create the opening that will allow the idea to be taken seriously? Who will be the person who can actually convince people that it's something that responsible people can take um, as being a responsible idea is almost impossible to know in advance. What is more, Knowing which ideas are in fact kooky and which are simply unreasonably stigmatized is hard for patrons to determine in advance. Like venture capitalists, good philanthropic investors in ideational change must be willing to accept that the majority, in some cases the great majority, of their investments will never get a return. And that leads to my final lesson uh, from the conservative legal movement, which is the importance of the long term. One thing that came out very clearly in my study, especially the Olin Foundation and of many of the organizations that, uh, that they supported, like the Federal Society or Law and Economics, is these are people who are willing to put resources and energy into projects that they knew would take decades to actually get a payoff. 
These are people who realized that they were playing an extremely long game and were willing to put investments in the creation of networks and organizations that would not have a return for a very long time. Uh, one concern, again, as uh, after talking to a number of people in the philanthropic <clears throat> community and in the community of people that they're funding, is that the, it may be that the decreasing um, uh, time horizon of funders is eventually going to be filtering down to organizations and that the long-term investments that uh, at least funders on the conservative and libertarian side were willing to put in may be drying up over time and the organizations that uh, they're funding will respond accordingly. Thank you. You want me to go up there? Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Steve, um, and thank you, Cato, for organizing this and inviting me here today. Um, I see a lot of friends in the audience. Uh, I love the book, um, and perhaps in you know, you always like being quoted, so that was one good thing. But also reading about friends and, and people I've admired through much of my career, um, I learned a lot. Um, learned a lot about, well, I knew most of the information you had about the Federalist Society, but I learned a lot about law and economics and the public interest law firms. Um, and I think Steve was able to capture many of the personalities there and the subtlety of that um, one that, that I, I found myself just laughing as I read was the triple negative to describe Clint Bullock uh, did not argue against opposing affirmative action, <laughs> which, which ideally captures the, the dilemma. Um, as to the Federalist Society, I, I think you hit it on, on all of the key essentials, um, the focus on debate and how that became a limiting factor uh, for us as we, you know, avoided mission creep into advocacy in other areas. Um, the principle of, that I always referred to as turning the other cheek, but accepting people with different philosophic approaches to the same issues, so libertarians, conservatives, Straussians, um, religious conservatives could all come together and discuss and debate um, I'll have to tell you, at, at the beginning, there were times where we had to be very intentional about that, as people who are now good friends of mine um, saw this new organization starting to become active in Washington and in a few cases took swipes at us. Um, I think Gene was particularly good at, at bringing us down off the wall and <laughs> saying, you know, let, let's extend an invitation for them to come and speak. That'll give them a forum for venting their, their concerns. Um, and it's worked well because, and in my view, it's been a successful strategy because I noticed a lot of conservative and libertarian and other organizations who do fight with each other spend all of their energy and capital doing that and never engage the dominant liberal uh, institutions in our society. And so it, it's been one that has served us well strategically as, as well as being, I think, morally correct. Um, we also have therefore tried to depoliticize the structure of the organization, and you captured that. I would perhaps stress a little bit more than, than the book does uh, my sense that the, the control of the organization actually rests outside of the legal board, although Gene and all of us are still very much uh, active and concerned about how things go. But if you talk to any of the chapter heads or the leaders of the practice groups, there is a definite sense of psychological ownership 
um, for the organization. It, it is theirs. And they have made it. They invest their time and personal capital to make it a success. Um, one last point uh, was that uh, organizationally, um, I've always remembered a quote that Judge Winter, um, a statement he made actually in, in, as he introduced Lee Otis and I to, I forget who, somebody who he was endorsing the Federalist Society to, and he said, these, these folks are great guys, the Wehrmacht they're not. <laughs> and uh, I know what he had in mind, and it comes from a story from the first symposium we set up where um, Judge Winter was, or then Professor Winter was the faculty advisor for the Yale chapter. We succeeded in getting all of the speakers to all of the panels throughout the program, um, with none of us really having any experience in convention planning or other types of activities. Uh, and then we came and started to relax as we went to the final banquet, uh, looked around and realized that Judge Winter wasn't there and that we had also forgotten to extend an invitation to him to come to the banquet. <laughs> so after great apologies the next day, um, he continued to be a fan and admirer of the organization. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on was uh, the conclusion that Steve has, which is we've succeeded in um, counter-networking, but, but the society and, and the effort towards building institutions in the law that would stand for its basic principles, the, the freedom, the role, rule of law, and the limited role of the judiciary to interpret not make the law, um, has been very successful. But we haven't become dominant. We, we have not, uh, in fact, haven't even reached the level he describes with law and economics where it permeates the um, legal institutions. In some ways, um, the question then becomes, have we gotten close or are we near a tipping point on that, um, much as law and economics went through? I don't know the answer to that, um, and, I, and I, I wouldn't speculate, but I would point out some interesting trends that we've been tracking at, at the board meetings. Um, the first is the, that our opposition on the left uh, took us seriously enough to create a intentionally mimic the structure and organization of the Federalist Society in creating a counterpart. Um, and they felt they were falling behind in, in doing that. Um, I'm not sure they're right, but, but that's certainly what they felt. The second is you've seen some interesting developments in the law schools where the Harvard chapter, for example, the, is, is one of the largest and now has and it, people who affiliate with the Federalist Society about 30 to 35 percent of the student body, um, which to me is phenomenal. I mean, when, when we started this, the standard number of members, whether you were at a big school like Harvard or at a small school like the University of Chicago, never got over 30. Um, and so there, there is an interest there in this new generation. It's reflected also in some of the hiring. There seems to be now competition among the deans at law schools to have at least one conservative on the faculty. Now, when you talk to them about two or three, that becomes a problem, but, but at least we've broken through that to, to be a, a true law school, they need to have that to be competitive. Personally, I've noticed at the law firms, when um, I was uh, at the bookends of my public service, I was an associate at Sidley and Austin and now a partner at Mayor Brown. When I was at Sidley and Austin, they let me take on a pro bono project to incorporate the Federalist Society, um, but mainly because they had no idea what it was. 
Um, and if you talk to any of the partners about joining a conservative legal organization, you, you either got blank stares or they threw you out of their office and said, I thought you were a nice young man. Um, not, not really. People were, were actually kind about it. When I joined Mayor Brown, one of the reasons that they hired me, even though I had little experience in law firms um, and had never practiced real law, that was the relationship I had with the Federalist Society. They viewed that as valuable to the firm and providing services to their clients here in Washington. So there was a complete turnabout in, in that very practical sense. And then finally, we're seeing uh, the politicalization or, or reaching out to what you re- refer to as sort of mass constituencies of some of the issues that the Federalist Society and, and conservative legal movement have taken up. Uh, particularly judicial selection becomes emblematic of that. Um, and so we're, we're seeing people who go beyond lawyers or people trained or interested in the law as an academic subject to uh, voters and grassroots organizations taking up an interest in these issues. What effect that will have will, will remain to be seen. My view is I'm not quite sure we've reached a tipping point, but it, it's interesting to watch. It will present then a whole set of new challenges um, among other things, we're used to being regarding ourselves as being in the minority, and we we take some strength in that in camaraderie. Um, if it if we were to become like law and economics, where it was more permeated the the um, legal institutions, we'd have to think through what our proper role was and how to respond to that without losing the commitment to the ideals that started us. So I want to close by saying thank you for the work. Um, thank you personally because I, I enjoyed reading it, but thank you for providing a history of something that's been near and dear to our heart and also pointing out a framework for thinking about the next 20 years in this area. And thank you, Cato, again. Well, like David, um, my role here is to be a critic But, like David, uh, there's not much to criticize in this book. It is a wonderful, uh, even-handed, non-tendentious discussion of the rise of the conservative legal movement. It is rich in detail. I urge you all to go out and buy a copy. Uh, Every chapter can serve as a book on itself. It's that rich, the chapter on the rise of the liberal legal establishment itself uh, is just, the detail is, is, is... Tremendous. So, uh, again, thank you for writing it, um, uh, Steve. It's uh, it's a wonderful book. Um, let me, before I turn to the remarks that I want to make, discharge my duty as a critic by just making a few very minor points. Um, first of all, I was uh, the the literature that this book draws upon is vast, but not included among them was a book that came from Heritage a few years ago by Lee Edwards on the freedom-based public law movement, and I was surprised to see that that wasn't included. Also in uh, Steve's discussion of the uh, early, especially the early uh, legal defense uh, foundations from the right, um, he starts with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is where most people do start, which was instituted in 1973, not with the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, which was constituted five years earlier. 
uh, and indeed did reflect some of the uh, virtues that he found missing in the later uh, first generation of legal defense foundations. It was national in scope. It uh, did have a single issue of its focus, and it's been quite successful, uh, including arguing numerous cases before the Supreme Court, including this term. No case more important, of course, than the Beck decision of 1988. So uh, that uh, was an omission that uh, I'm sorry to see was there. Ray Lajonis is with us today from the Right to Work Foundation. The focus of the book, however, is primarily on the institutional and organizational entrepreneurs uh, who operated uh, to counter this elite legal establishment uh, in the law schools, the bar, and so forth. And in that respect, <clears throat> the book is, um, as I said, just does, does a wonderful job of putting that big picture together in exquisite detail. Um, the um, <clears throat> uh, what what is missing, however, it, in, and in fact, there was more of it here uh, this afternoon uh, than you find in the book, was some attention or, or serious detailed attention to the intellectual foundations. Uh, of this movement. And so that's what I want to focus on here because, as Mike Horowitz uh, brought out in his uh, critique, the problem with the first generation of uh, uh, conservative legal defense foundations is that there had been established to that point no serious intellectual uh, or academic foundation upon which they could be based. Uh, and there's a whole story to be said there, uh, the only part of which is told in this book. To be sure, uh, Steve focuses on the economic uh, influence, uh, the influence of the economists on the movement, but that's only one strain. Uh, another strain, of course, is the political science strain, and you see a lot of that um, in the uh, Federalist Society uh, uh, evolution. But there's another strain, too, and it comes from philosophy, and it is to be found in particular as the foundation for the Institute for Justice, which plays a prominent role in the book. Um, the philosophy tradition goes way back. Uh, Robert Nozick, of course, uh, Harvard Philosophy Department in 1974 with his book Anarchy, State, and Utopia made it safe to say in the academic world things that you couldn't say up to that point. He was the consummate libertarian. A uh, number of us came from philosophy. Richard Epstein and I came from Columbia. I did three degrees in philosophy. Randy Barnett did his undergraduate degree in philosophy at Northwestern. Tibor Mackin, now out at Hoover. Uh, Jeff and Ellen Paul at the uh, Bowling Green Center in Ohio. Uh, Doug Denoyle and Doug Rasmussen, who worked closely with the Liberty Fund. Uh, Eric Mack down at Tulane. There's a whole host of people who developed the libertarian foundations that underpin this movement. Uh, back during the 60s, uh, not so much the 60s, but especially during the, uh, the 70s. Uh, so my uh, uh, remarks here are going to be seen less as a criticism, Steve, than as a supplement to, to what you've uh, set forth so well in the book. And I do so because I have lived this history. Uh, I'm a little older than you, Steve, and so I was there at the beginning, as it were. And I'm going to draw upon some of that autobiographically. Um, but I go into this, as I said a moment ago, because it's especially relevant for uh, the Institute for Justice, and that's one of the three major institutions that Steve focuses on. He focuses on the Federalist Society, the Law and Economics Movement, and the Institute for Justice, a little less on the Center for Individual Rights. And IJ it has its roots in the natural rights tradition uh, and in the American founding, just as we do here at Cato, and so that needs to be brought out in particular. Um, 
Now, it's captured in the approach, uh, especially to the judiciary, and the splits that you've seen in the conservative movement over the proper role in the judiciary, about which I'm going to say something more in just a moment. So what are the roots of this part of the picture? They begin, of course, as the conservative, modern conservative movement does with F.A. Hayek and his road to serfdom in 1944. Um, and, of course, Hayek was a, an economist first, but also a social scientist and a philosopher to a substantial degree, um, a true Renaissance man. Hayek, of course, was followed by people like Ayn Rand and Bill Buckley, who developed uh, the normative side of matters, both in their separate way, reason, faith, and faith and reason together in Buckley, all reacting, of course, uh, Hayek, uh, Rand, Buckley, and others, to the progressive era and the mindset that came from that period, which was institutionalized in the New Deal, uh, and especially the uh, uh, New Deal court established the uh, legal order, which during the 50s was what this movement that Steve writes about was rebelling against, the, uh, the establishment that took the form of a virtually homogeneous uh, uh, law uh, schools and, uh, and the ABA and so forth. And in the philosophy uh, that was coming out in this period was purely analytical in the Anglo-American tradition. They did not deal much at all with political philosophy. In fact, to illustrate that, I'll give you a quote from uh, a little volume on political philosophy that came out in 1967, an anthology by Anth uh, Anth um, Anthony Quinton from uh, Oxford, the Oxford Don. Uh, I remember using this quote in, an, uh, in a question I put to Hayek in an um, address he gave here at the University Club in 1983 on evolutionary ethics. Quinton wrote that uh, political philosophy in the grand tradition from Plato and Aristotle to Marx and Mill had petered out in the 20th century, although an occasional magnificent dinosaur stalks on the scene, such as Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, seemingly impervious to the effects of natural selection. <laughs> now, <clears throat> that, that raised the question, of course, of whether Hayek was a, uh, a, a, a throwback or was indeed a prototype. And, of course, it turns out he was a prototype because there followed shortly thereafter John Rawls' um, uh, Theory of Justice, the Nozick's Anarchy State in Utopia, the two people I worked under at Chicago, Alan Donegan's uh, Theory of Morality, Alan Gaworth's Reason and Morality, and a host of books bringing back to the fore political philosophy as it hadn't been in the fore for most of the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> and all of this reduced to the, the focus upon rights. And I say that because it was to a reaction to the rights revolution that at least a good part of the conservative legal foundation movement began. And here um, <clears throat> I need to go into a little bit of detail because the libertarians opposed this reaction to the rights revolution at some level. We said, look, this is what this country is all about, natural rights. That's what it was founded upon. Maybe the liberals have gone too far, but then again, you can't throw it all out. And all of this you can capture nicely in Bork's uh, Tempting of America, uh, which um, had a wonderful discussion of the, what he called the Madisonian dilemma, and it manifests itself in the role of the judiciary. Bork said that our first principle as a nation is that in wide areas, majorities are entitled to rule simply because there are majorities. Nevertheless, our second principle is there are some areas in which majorities may not rule, some areas in which minorities 
should be free from majority rule. Well, the libertarians said that gets Madison exactly backwards. Madison stood for the idea that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free because they're born free. Nevertheless, there are some areas in which majorities are entitled to rule because we've authorized them to rule. That captures clearly the distinction between the conservative uh, judicial restraint side and the libertarian judicial activism side that folks at IJ and elsewhere promoted. Now, I say activism, but what I really mean is that there is all the difference between an active judiciary and judicial activism. And that distinction was one that the libertarians have tried to flesh out as they went along. Um, and the origins of this um, uh, jurisprudential divide, which the Federalist Society was very careful to uh, nuance, and they'd have from the inception, and it turned out to be um, to be a very uh, useful uh, approach to it. Go back to the um, uh, the work that was done. Uh, I did some early work in this in 1972 at Chicago. Uh, Epstein was developing his theory of uh, torts uh, across the way at the law school. IHS and the Liberty Fund were doing were doing programs during the late 70s uh, on contract freedom of contract and so forth. Bernie Segan was working the details out of his magnificent book Economic Liberties and the Judiciary which was published by the University of Chicago in 1980 uh, I put together a conference in San Diego in 1979 on the theory of rights which was published and the IHS did a great job of disseminating that the Philadelphia Society had a uh, conference on, uh, on jurisprudence in 1981 which set forth many of these issues in the middle way between conservatism and and, um, liberalism. Uh, then Cato had a conference on economic liberties in the judiciary uh, back in 1984, which featured a magnificent debate between then Judge Scalia and Richard Epstein, which drew a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, the ABA had a program on it in its bicentennial uh, program in 1987. Uh, Cato published the proceedings of that Economic Liberties Conference. The Federalist Society ran that conf ran a, uh, a an Economic Liberties in the Judiciary Conference itself in 1987 over at George Mason. Uh, in '88, uh, Cato established the Center for Constitutional Studies, and we published Randy Barnett's book a year later on the Ninth Amendment. All of this was part of the intellectual foundation for the practical strategies that Chip Meller and Clint Bullock would uh, would draw upon as they develop the practical foundations for the Institute for Justice. And so this is part of the intellectual foundations that were being developed very sub rosa all during the 70s and through the 80s as well. Where does law and economics fit into all of this? It was taking something of a parallel path. Um, it, was a, it was on different foundations. It was essentially consequentialist. These folks rooted their uh, justificatory theory insofar as they were normative in consequentialism, and so they could be seen as a policy school and therefore were uh, something of an uncomfortable fit with the proper role of the judiciary that the conservatives focused on because judges are not supposed to be engaged in policy. They're supposed to be engaged in applying the law. But you had people like Richard Posner in an essay in the Texas Law Review saying that this was 1976, we will one day have a utilitarian theory of justice. Well, we had a number of utilitarian theories of justice going at least as far back as Bentham. 
But what he meant by that, of course, was that we will have a theory that shows that the foundation for law is social wealth maximization, a consequentialist theory. So in many ways, the law and economics folks were part and parcel of the post-New Deal school, and they fit in uncomfortably, at least as a, as a foundational matter. Uh, and you could see this in such cases as Kilo. In, in the Kilo case, you could make a credible case that public, in, uh, public um, uh, benefit, uh, which was what the court drew upon to decide that uh, eminent domain case, could be, in, uh, could be informed by social wealth maximization. And so people at IJ could say, no, the problem is even if you can show that this uh, condemnation of Mrs. Kilo's property will serve to maximize social wealth, it's wrong. It's wrong on a consideration of rights and the original understanding of the Constitution. So that captures some of the tension that we've seen as this movement uh, has evolved. I'm going to conclude with just a quote from, if you've got the book, it's on page 80 at the end of the Federalist Society chapter because this captures nicely a good deal of what I've said. Here Steve writes that while the society, along with other parts of the conservative movement, has helped weaken the power establishment, that's the liberal establishment, it has, counter to its typical member's philosophy, further weakened the idea that there are any neutral standards, and in particular, any institutions that can be counted upon to defend them. And just a little below that, he says, partially as a result of the society's challenge to the legal, liberal legal network, the law has become racked by seemingly unending ideological conflict, making it even harder to move toward the society's understanding of the rule of law as something that transcends the ideological conflicts of the day. The society's activities have injected competition into the legal profession, but not, at least for now, a new establishment. That's true, but it's early in the day. Before we move to questions, uh, Professor Tallis, would you like to comment on the yes, comment? Okay. Stay there. Okay. Uh, just a couple of responses. Um, one is I want to heighten a couple of things uh, that David has to say. Uh, I think one thing that's very important in understanding the Federal Society and in understanding some of the other organizations of the conservative legal movement was the importance of what in the book I call boundary maintenance, organizations having a sense of where their missions end, um, being willing to, uh, uh, to limit themselves, not to grow where they could grow. And to some degree, this goes against uh, a lot of what we might assume from a public choice analysis, right, which is we might assume that organizations have a natural tendency to expand because they want to maximize uh, budget, they want to maximize program. But what was uh, remarkable about both the Federal Society and later on in some cases when I looked at the Institute for Justice was the willingness of the organization to say no, to say no, no we, don't, we, we could do this, we could spend money on this, we could get a large grant to do this, but we're not going to do it because it contradicts other things we're doing, it puts us in conflict with our members, it takes us away from our core competency, and I think that's one lesson of what effective organizations do is they have enough of a clear sense of what their particular role is, uh, that they're willing to be able to say no to things that they could do. And I think that's one point where... Um, the continuity of leadership at the very top of the organization was important, not for running everything that's going on the ground day to day, but in keeping the organization from drifting from its core 
competency. Um, the other thing I want to say about the Federal Society, about David's point, is, uh, again, to some degree, the opposite of that point, the enormous importance of the fact that this is not what uh, Theta Scotchpole once called uh, an association without members. Um, that's sort of the, the typical way to or- organize any organization in modern Washington is basically to get three guys in a fax machine, um, and you call yourself an organization, and you claim to speak for a bunch of people. What's remarkable at the Federal Society, and to some degree almost without uh, uh, any comparable uh, thing over the last 20 years, is a degree to which this is an organization in which most of the guts of the activity actually happens among the members themselves, not by a bunch of people in Washington. And I think that's important also for the things I was talking about in my presentation here, which is that allows most of the activity to burble up from the bottom, not to be all planned from the center. The Federal Society often helps to support things that their members have, that people in practice groups want to do something, people in the lawyers groups want to do something, but very rarely do they send orders down from the top. Um, Just one point about uh, Roger Pallon's very well-taken comments. Um, One of the themes in the book is the uh, characteristic libertarianism of the public interest, the conservative public interest law movement. And part of that, as Roger very, I think, appropriately notes, was because of the the philosophical foundations of the people, for example, who started the Institute uh, for Justice. They very much came, these people very much came out of a a background where they were reading all the the things that Roger was talking about. These were feeding into their, their, uh, their understanding of public interest law. But at the, other, at the other side, a number of the organizations, especially the Center for Individual Rights, were not really started with pe- by people who were deeply committed to that movement. To some degree, in the, as I described in the book, their libertarianism was endogenous. That is, it came out of the actual process of engaging in public interest law itself. That is, the Center for Individual Rights originally had a number of projects that were not really libertarian in character. That is, they wanted to support... Um, uh, uh, public housing uh, organizations that wanted to uh, remove um, uh, uh, drug dealers. They wanted to encourage uh, the role of discipline in schools. They wanted to uh, uh, tighten up um, on uh, – sorry, they wanted to weaken the uh, Supreme Court's very tight libel law rules. And one of the things they found was it was very almost impossible to do these kind of things through the actual sort of instrument that public interest law is. Public interest law is much more suited – to libertarianism. It's much more suited to challenging state authority than it is to supporting it. Um, So in that sense, some of the libertarianism of the conservative legal movement has come because of a principled attachment to these ideas, and some have come because it actually turns out that this instrument is much more uh, wired up for libertarianism than than it is for uh, supporting uh, the role of the state. And I think the Christian legal movement has found this out the same way, that is, a lot of their original litigation was in trying to uh, weaken the court's establishment uh, uh, clause jurisdiction, and they've moved much more to an orientation toward applying the free speech provisions of the First Amendment, uh, essentially to leverage the uh, libertarianism of inherited free speech doctrine. So I think in many of that cases, the libertarianism of the public interest law movement can see seen both as a principled uh, adoption of the ideas that Roger's talking about and as a kind of organizational adaptation to the nature of the regime they were trying to challenge. 
Thank you for that. We'll now move to questions. Now we have three rules when we have questions. First of all, please uh, wait for the microphone, then identify yourself and any affiliation. And third, and perhaps most important, actually uh, ask a question. <laughs> I'm Ray Lajeunesse, uh, Vice President and Legal Director of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. I want to thank Roger for pointing out that omission in the book, and I'm curious as to why there was no mention of the foundation in the book, because uh, it was acknowledged in Lee Edwards' book uh, that Heritage put out about the conservative legal movement. Um, and just to add to that history, uh, not only were we founded before Pacific, we had our first case in the United States Supreme Court in 1971, two years before they were established. And I think that caught the attention of the folks who were putting Pacific together because uh, Mr. Floor, who later became chairman, their first chairman, sent someone, one of his associates, to our offices, spent a whole day studying how we operated and what our legal strategies were before they started PLF. So I'm curious, why didn't you include it in the book? Right, uh, we're going to collect, we do this one at a time. Right, the, uh, that, that, that's a tough question. It's not one of these ones where I can just say, well, that's obviously wrong. Um, that is, uh, in many of the cases, again, it's already a long book, but that's sort of a cop-out. Uh, to say, well, it's a long book. Um, and part of it was I went where I already felt like I had uh, advantages, where I already had contacts, where I already had, where I already had um, uh, networks, uh, and I didn't have them in that area. The other thing is, in some cases, I was leveraging existing papers I had. So the Olin papers I got access to, most of the, uh, the, the, uh, the work that, uh, that, uh, that started in the beginning of the, uh, um, the Right to Work uh, Legal Defense Fund, happened before that, happened before my papers uh, happened. So in some sense, my book is to some degree hostage to where I had materials. Um, but again, if you're, if you're offering to open up the files of the Right to Work Foundation, I'm perfectly happy to, uh, to, take, uh, to take up your, your very generous offer in, a, uh, um, in, in future work. Oh, well, I have you on tape now. I'm Michael Horowitz at the Hudson Institute. I, again, I, can I just echo, if I can just break your rule, uh, uh, your praise, David's, and I think uh, you took it in, of uh, Gene Meyer at the Federalist Society. Every time I'd get hammered about the Federalist Society being an empire, one would just turn to Gene. There's just not an ounce of imperialism in there. <laughs> perfect symbol for the movement and... Uh, uh, and and reflected in everything he did, all of the virtues that I think you described. The 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 question I want to ask you is uh, whether there isn't a fourth element, and that was the Reagan administration and the work done there. Uh, law and economics became uh, embedded in public policy as. Uh, those soulless bean counters, as we lawyers used to think of them, like Doug Ginsburg and Chris DeMuth, showed that they had more to say about public policy than we as lawyers did. Uh, the hiring of Federalist Society lawyers, the legitimation of Federalist Society lawyers, the uh, limitation of the role of agency general counsels who had been captured by bureaucracies, and uh, allowing the Reagan administration and conservative legal principles to prevail, 
through the battles that took place within the Reagan administration. And there are many other factors like that. I wonder why you didn't think of the Reagan administration as really a fourth factor uh, in, in, uh, in the development. Well, I'm glad you asked because I've actually been doing uh, writing on the Reagan uh, Justice Department and the larger legal um, uh, structure of, of the Reagan administration. Uh, one thing that I do want to emphasize is that I think that the Reagan administration in many cases was most successful where they already had an enormous amount of organizational development and intellectual development outside of the administration before. So if you were trying to pick the single biggest success of the Reagan Justice Department, at least in the first term, there would be no question that it was Bill Baxter's uh, antitrust division, right? Now, why was the antitrust division so successful? One, they appointed Bill Baxter, right? Uh, that is someone who had already thought through uh, antitrust and who already uh, knew the field, uh, who was connected to all the major figures in, uh, the, in, the, uh, in antitrust, knew who to hire, um, that is, was well enough networked to know who to, uh, who to staff the uh, division with, and basically already had a complete sort of vision of what a proper uh, role of antitrust was. That was only because essentially law and economics had been working on antitrust for 20 years or more by the time that Baxter came to office. And again, I think that's one of the themes in the book is that the importance of the extra-governmental support structure for the ability of those actually in government to be effective. Now, I don't want to say that the causation doesn't go in the other direction, right? And again, I think that's really your point. That is that we can think about the extra governmental support structure as being necessary for governmental actors to squeeze the most out of the opportunities they have. But there's actually things that governmental actors themselves can do to uh, support uh, that extra governmental support structure, right? I mean, you're a perfect example of this and are in the book on this case and in the writings I've done on, the, on, the, um, on uh, Reagan's lawyers, that is, the support of some of the more important Reagan lawyers like yourself were, I think, very important. The people in the Federal Society who I talked to uh, have admitted as such about getting the organization off the ground, about uh, providing patrons, providing connections to important uh, senior members of the conservative uh, legal movement. All of this was important in, in, in order to help the Federal Society get over from being a small organization of students to being a large national organization. Um, in addition, I think, in terms of the development, the intellectual development of many of the ideas of originalism. The Reagan Justice Department turned out to be an enormously important um, uh, uh, forcing ground for that, especially in, uh, in Mises' second term, where Mises uh, actively brought people in, brought intellectuals into the department to try to uh, uh, communicate those, uh, those ideas that were fermenting out of government in ter terms of also communicating the problems that Reagan's lawyers were facing and trying to communicate those to uh, intellectuals on the outside who try to, um, uh, to work on those. And again, also, again, the role of legitimation, uh, the role of having Reagan lawyers willing to go out and, and say these ideas, right? That is to take them from being things that were considered to be crazy or off the wall, but by, you know, if, to some degree, if the attorney general says it, um, it's almost by definition not off the wall anymore. And I think uh, Mies very much played that role for originalism, not really making up anything on his own, not doing any real original intellectual work, but willing, being willing to put his imprimatur and putting his, uh, his status behind this idea made enormous, uh, gave enormous advantages to those working outside of government because these were now ideas that they could, uh, that others had to take seriously, whether they wanted to or not. Uh, yes, uh, like uh, Mike, I also felt that the 
context of the Reagan administration did not get quite enough uh, credit in the book um, because it is the context within which so much of this development took place. Secondly, as you just mentioned, Steve, the uh, role of Ed Meese in speaking out for originalism and drawing Brennan out of the uh, woodwork, so to speak, as his adversary, put this on a map in a way that it had never been before. And thirdly, the appointment of judges uh, by um, Reagan, um, people like Easterbrook, uh, Posner, uh, uh, Doug Ginsburg, and and, and others, um, provided the opportunity, uh, as you point out in the book, for the uh, foundations to fund these uh, legal defense foundations, the, 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 the patrons to fund the legal defense foundations, uh, because uh, the judges are going to be uh, no better than the cases that are brought before them. And you need to have those cases coming up through the system so that the Easterbrooks of the world can uh, rule upon them. I'd like to ask you a question, Steve. As a, uh, as a neutral observer of, of, of this movement and the various subphenomena that you detail, being neither a lawyer nor a conservative, I'm wondering if you can apply your um, methodology, which I, I gently jabbed you about being the, the academic model, but I appreciate it in getting away from reading cases and, and, and journalistic things all, all day. Um, what can you say about how either the Federalist Society or uh, maybe the third generation of public interest law groups, how can they be uh, more effective or what do you predict is, uh, is going on there that, that we'll see in the next five, ten years or, or longer, and David might want to comment on that. Well, the, I mean, this is an interesting uh, discussion in part because I've had discussions with, uh, with Brink Lindsay around his, uh, I guess, somewhat controversial idea in Cato on the, uh, liberalitarianism. I think one thing that, that's going to distinguish um, the, uh, the next generation or the next 10 or 15 years of both conservative and uh, libertarian public interest law is that it's not going to be quite the coalitional lines, I think, on some of these issues are becoming much weaker. Obviously, we know that with national security, where where a number of libertarians and even conservatives in many cases have been uh, suspicious of what other parts of the conservative movement um, uh, have wanted. Um, I think you can can see that uh, in part just on priorities, that issues like Kilo were major priorities for libertarians in a way that they're simply not uh, for conservatives. I think more of the, uh, the lines between judicial, uh, sort of traditional judicial restraint conservatives and libertarians are going to start to break down. And I think one of the really interesting questions is the degree to which the idea that conservative, that we, you know, in the book I often say conservative and libertarian as if it's one word. Um, uh, but I think one thing is I think the distinction between those two parts of the movement are going to become much more, uh, much clearer. Again, I think if you look at the, and this is partially just a function of changes in the agenda, right? The agenda when many of these uh, organizations got off the ground were ordinary economic uh, freedom questions in which conservatives and libertarians in many cases um, had common ground. I think much of the governmental agenda and the legal agenda over the next 10 or 15 years is going to change. The other thing I think that may Affect this is the degree to which a number of liberals are going to become uncomfortable with many of the legal doctrines and ideas that um, they grew used to thinking were naturally associated with uh, with liberalism. The idea of having a kind of not having any constitutional restraints on uh, on takings, no restraints on um, on the operation of administrative uh, um, agencies. 
I think many uh, liberals now are recognizing that much of what they thought was associated with egalitarianism in practice is only associated with rent-seeking. And I think that creates a lot of opportunities for libertarians and liberals who are now recognizing the, uh, the limits of many of the things that they once thought were ways to advance egalitarianism. I think that creates a lot of opportunities for what, at least initially, will be seen as strange bedfellows coalitions and in the future may be seen uh, as even more. I think Kilo is a good example of that. I think um, a lot of the school choice litigation is a good example of that. When you actually look at who uh, these, when these issues are actually fought out in the ground, a lot of the, uh, uh, the advocates for these are people who are strong egalitarians, in some cases almost radical egalitarians, um, but who think that a lot of the, especially the precedents that have been with us uh, all the way back to the New Deal, are no longer really serving, uh, serving their purpose. Let me add to that another subject area, um, and that's federalism, where you're seeing the liberal legal establishment embrace more and a greater role for the states, and you're seeing some divisions among traditionally conservative elements on whether you should argue for preemption or or follow um, the lines of federalism laid out in the Reagan executive order. The, so I think that's another example that fits Steve's prediction. There'll, there'll be differences in the alliance. There's two comments on that. One, I think, and it's somewhat reflected in Michael's question about the Reagan administration, I think the political events that occur will have an effect on that. You know, who, what administration is in power beginning in 2009 and, and succeeding uh, elections will have a, a direct bearing on what problems or issues rise to the fore in that. Uh, as Steve points out, the, the, for the Federalist Society, the Clinton administration was a growth period. Um, so you, it's an opportunity for the networking to expand. Um, I think there are, in addition to reacting to that, so it's an unknown, we don't, we, you can't plan out the, the specifics. There are a couple clear areas where I think there'll be um, projects that, that will bear fruit. One is continuing the push in the in, among the law schools and the academic centers to allow more conservatives to be on the faculty. Um, and a corollary to that will be sort of the, the social disciplining that um, Steve describes vis-a-vis -vis the, the political actors in judicial selections. I think some of that will be important uh, for the academics because uh, every you know we're all human and subject to to socialization pressures. So once you get tenure, um, the people you're talking to all the time aren't your former colleagues um, in the in a conservative political movement. The second would be I think um, developing an agenda that leaps back to. Um, what Elias referred to as, as sort of founding principles and, and Roger, and continues to apply them to modern developments, and whether it's spurred by technology or um, social issues that arise in the country. That's going to be a role that the conservative legal movement can continue to, to play a leading role in, in the whole conservative movement, and one that I think gives us the opportunity uh, to make 
the, the ideas that we care about more mainstream and normative. I guess the final one would be continue to be the, the broker between the splits that you identified, national security and, and the need to gather intelligence versus um, the desire to protect individual rights. Those things, I guess I'm confident in the, the benefits of debate. The, the, if we bring each other together, um, talk them through, we can reach um, more common ground than may appear at first blush. A quick illustration of David's point about federalism uh, is the case of um, Gonzalez v. Raich, the California medical marijuana case, uh, which was argued by Federalist Society stalwart Randy Barnett and um, was rejected by Federalist Society founding father Antonin Scalia, but such is the culture of the Federalist Society that they both speak warmly of each other, even though one of them is wrong. <laughs> Can I make one just follow up on that? I mean, the one thing I think that's important to understand about the federal society is the fact that um, there are these opportunities for sort of repeated interaction of the members of the society. Um, again, across these uh, factional divides within conservatism does create a very strong incentive to try to figure out how to reconcile those positions. Again, I think you can see that very much in, the, uh, in religious liberty, right? That you would think would be one of those issues that would have the most potential for uh, factional divides, right? And I think one of the uh, explanations for the, uh, the increasing centrality of, of free speech doctrine and in, in, uh, understanding a lot of religious liberty cases is that's an approach that both libertarians and social conservatives can accept, right? The more that you're in a uh, in a uh, organization that bridges these things and encourages people to interact together, the more you're going to try to solve those problems somehow intellectually, right? One thing I think is an interest uh, is an interesting question for uh, the movement as it goes along is the degree to which um, libertarians are going to uh, to think that the overall commitment to this operation to this to be to trying to figure out solutions with conservatives is not going to be worth it anymore. Again, I, just to use Brink as one example, right, is, is in some sense I take the argument for libertarianism is to say, look, you know, our first instinct in trying to figure out how to reconcile our positions with those with others, maybe we should try and figure out how to reconcile our positions with liberals on issues in which it seems like we've got conflict rather than have our first instinct to be doing that with conservatives. So one question I think, and I think this is a question that's going to face the entire conservative movement, is whether libertarians are going to think that, they're, uh, um, that the commitment to, uh, first and foremost, trying to, to, uh, to stay together to whatever degree they can with other forms of conservatives is simply going to break down and you're going to find more institutional and organizational linkages between libertarians and liberals. We have time for one more question. I see Gene Meyer has his hand up. I'm maybe risking... Uh undermining Mike's point about imperialism or whatever. I really do <laughs> wonder about the, this, whether we have not greatly exaggerated this question of conservative and libertarian, not, uh, you know, a, a dis disagreement. Um, and it may become very clear depending on what the next administration is. But it's always seemed to me with the federal society, and talked about this, I think, in connection with the book, Steve, uh, that – 80 to 90% of the time, there's, ba there's probably basic general agreement, uh, certainly on the many of the deep and fundamental issues, you know, si size of government, uh, is cer certainly the classic one, basic questions of, you know, freedom, et cetera. And I'm wondering 
whether the differences don't appear greater than perhaps they are because so many of the interesting intellectual questions for many of the people involved on both sides are in those areas of differences. Um, do you have a, a reaction to that? Well, again, I mean, one of the things that traditionally causes coalitions to break apart is not that they start disagreeing more on the things they were first talking about, but because the agenda changes, right? Um, size of government issues, I mean, one of the, I mean, again, I may get a lot of disagreement about this in this room, but um, I'm not sure that there's, that most, that it's not going to be the case that most of the debate over the next 10 years or 15 years isn't going to be over what we do within the scope of the size of government we have, rather than the question of how big government should be or smaller, right? And if the debate is over the character of government rather than its size, right, if the basic scope of the opportunity for expansion or contraction has basically limited itself, um, then that basic axial question that conservatives and libertarians are held together on, which is a basic commitment to, to preventing the expansion of the size of government, may uh, go by the wayside. So I think that would be one thing. Obviously, the increasing importance of national security issues is an issue on which uh, the potential for enormous conflict uh, exists. And again, that's what you usually see across American history about why coalitions break down, right? It's that some new, new issue emerges that people all of a sudden decide is much more important, much more central to their identity, much more central to their politics than they'd ever previously thought it was. And I think if I was looking for opportunities for the connection between conservatives and libertarians to break down, it would be that, that people thought that 80% in which they agreed was simply not as important as they once thought it was. And I think that, that's where I would look for it over in the future. Uh, I um, want to pick up on Gene's question because um, he's absolutely right that in most areas, conservatives and libertarians do agree, just as the law and economics people, notwithstanding their consequentialist justificatory foundations, tend to come out on the same side as the deontological rights people in 95% of the cases. There will be exceptions. I remember the Posner-Epstein debates over strict liability versus negligence standard back in the 70s. Uh, and there are other cases like uh, um, the, the, the possibly the Kilo cases I mentioned here. But it seems to me that in most cases we're going to come out on the same side because there is a certain cluster of principles like property rights, for example, that we all share and like um, uh, the idea that Judges should be restrained in the fundamental sense of that term, not make up the law as they go along. We, we have disagreements about what the law is um, oftentimes, but that's not about what the proper role of the judge is. There's a wonderful quote that Steve's got in here um, from, um, I can't remember who it was, about, uh, oh, I think it was Owen Fiss. Owen Fiss at Yale, uh, that, you know, judges should essentially go out and, and do justice rather than apply the law. Um, but the reason I think that we will probably stay together more than part is because the coming battles in the next few years are going to be, as they have been over the last few years, over the nomination of judges to the courts and especially to the Supreme Court. And the battles, whoever gets elected in November, are going to be fierce um, after the eight years that the Democrats have put uh, the Bush administration to, um, especially these last few, uh, and the threat of filibusters, I can't imagine that uh, Republicans are going to turn the other cheek and say uh, we're going to be good guys now. I mean, it's just there's too much blood on the Senate floor right now for that. 
Uh, but I could be fooled because Republicans are past masters at uh, seizing um, defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, but um, in any event, it seems to me that that is the issue uh, where we are really going to see or test whether the coalition that has been together up to this point will remain. I think it will remain when I look at some of the people that the Democrats may be thinking of nominating to the Supreme Court. Thank you for that. Uh, Before we adjourn, and I ask you to uh, uh, thank the panelists, I just want to put in a quick mention of, well, first of all, you can buy Steve's book, and he will be happy to sign it for you outside. Uh, A couple of related books that you might be interested in from Cato are, first of all, well, I guess Cato didn't publish this, but my colleague Bob Levy is a co-author, The Dirty Dozen, uh, which is about how 12 Supreme Court cases radically expanded government and eroded freedom. Uh, and the second one by someone else who's mentioned in Steve's book, Clint Bullock, uh, with his book, David's Hammer, The Case for an Activist Judiciary. And that one uh, teases out nicely that uh, difference between conservatives and libertarians. Uh, so with that, uh, and after this, you can go up to lunch, but I'd like to uh, have a, a warm thanks for all the panelists. <laughs>